don't even know if I can, I can touch these books, but <laughs> looking at them. Hey, Carl. Rabbi, it's so good to see you. I wish I could give you. We both would give each other a hug. Welcome well, to our sanctuary. Thank you. Your sanctuary is absolutely amazing. Thank you. It was designed with uh, a lot of love, a lot of attention to detail, a lot of understanding about what it means to make a three-dimensional space into something holy and sacred and that touches the spirit. Passageway, and then they get to take in the... Wow. The sanctuary, which um, unbelievable. Very different than the previous one, which was in the exact space. It's filled with natural light, so we feel that God's presence being brought in from the outside. It's in the round, which creates a sense of community and that you're connecting to others. And we want it to be both beautiful, but also intimate and, and warm at the same time. Now, since we opened it, we've used it, we've been out of it more than we've been in it. This beautiful room is empty, just waiting for people to come back to it. Oh, man. But the birds have been here, you can tell. <laughs> we still obviously think about that terrible moment in human Jewish history, but it's not what this generation of Jews wants to be thinking about when they're praying. So it, it hung over the room in a very heavy way. So what we've done is if you, um, through that door, I can actually show you, the entire wall of the sanctuary used to look like this. Oh my God. And these are the names of concentration camps um, that Jews were killed in. And this has now become the hall of memories where when people die, they can dedicate a plaque like this to their loved one, and it will get lit up during the week in the year that their loved one died. So eventually these walls are gonna be filled with plaques like that. So wow. parents, spouses, friends who passed away. Wow. So it, we wanted to preserve it because it was historic. But so this is from the old... Uh, it's actually a replica. We found an amazing art because when we broke down the previous room, you can see it's made of something that crumbled so easily. So it crumbled. Mm -hmm. So we took a good model of it and it, it, you couldn't tell it's a replica because it's so similar to the original. Wow. This is original. This is original. You see these panels that are ringing yeah. the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. So we call them Parsha panels. Parsha is the Hebrew word for the section of the Torah, the Bible that's read every week. So Jews read the entire Torah, the five books of Moses, in order in the course of a year and it's divided into 54 sections. And although I, I can't really break it down for you, each one of those panels is an incredibly elaborate artistic interpretation of the theme of that week's reading through the Hebrew letter, the story of Noah. Okay, so you it. can see the words in Hebrew mm -hmm. look like they're waves, mm -hmm. right? So the, the piece of art is representing the story. Um, Vayera is the story where um, Abraham takes uh, Isaac and bounce him on the on Mount Moriah. So you see Mount Moriah in the background, on the top is the Hebrew word to say Moriah, and there are all these illusions wow. from the story built symbols, into the art. Symbols, much symbols, correct. Right. correct. Um, so some, some are easier to describe than others, um, but so each one of them has its own individual uh, panel, and when uh, they're also uh, connected to electric currents, so uh, we don't, we're not doing it now because people aren't in the, in the building, but when you come in on a particular Sabbath, the, week, the reading that you're going to do that week will be lit up in blue, so it's just visually obvious. Ah, we're at that week. Oh no, we're at that week. We're at that oh week. wow, nice. Yeah. Oh, 
This is the Holy Ark, right? and this is where the Torah scrolls are kept. Usually at a, in a synagogue, the doors to an ark are opaque. You can't see through them. We decided to make ours more kind of ethereal and filled with light. And the other thing this is evocative of, um, in Jerusalem, in the Wailing Wall, you can come on the inside, Jews for centuries have been putting little notes in the crevices of the stones. And the idea mm -hmm. is that yeah. it's a way to get a direct message to God. Right. So we whimsically recreated that where these Lucite tablets have holes in them. And when we dedicated the sanctuary and at different times during the year, we give people an opportunity to write a little note and they stick it in the hole. Oh, nice. And so first of all, it the colors come through when the light comes through, and it's a way that people could put their own prayers in our in our wall. In our wow. So these we. I'm so just, these are actual prayers. Correct. Right? Yeah, I, I have one of them in there. I forgot which one is mine. Um, and occasionally we do it. We do programs where we invite people in to write them. did you become a rabbi? Okay, so I'm, I'm hearing that question in two ways. One was like the technical process, how does one do it? And then yes. how does one make the decision to do it? Exactly. Um, how one actually becomes a rabbi, at least in the modern era, is that the degree is really a combination between a scholarly degree and a professional degree. And in most of the modern movements, I'm not talking about the ultra-Orthodox Hasidim, but the modern movements, the people who, like myself, who I'm I live fully engaged in American life, and I went to college. Um, if, you're, if you're going to become a rabbi, you first finish your undergraduate degree, which I did. I did an undergraduate degree in history and psychology. And then rabbinical school, just like there's medical school or dental school, is a five- or six-year program after your bachelor's degree, depending on your knowledge base when you went in. Some people take time off in between. Some people come to it as a second career. I graduated college, I went straight to rabbinical school, and in five years I was ordained as a rabbi. Okay. And along the way you get a master's degree. Um, so that's, that's the pathway, and depending on what form of Judaism you observe, that'll determine which one you go to. So just as there are so many different representations of Christianity and Christ followers, as you and I have discussed, there are many expressions of Judaism. I grew up with what's called a conservative rabbi. In Judaism, the word conservative means something different than in American politics. Their most conservative rabbis are not particularly conservative when it comes to like American politics. Conservative means that they're trying to conserve, preserve Jewish tradition, but still be involved in the modern world. So you might think of us as a little bit more liberal than Orthodox Jews, mm -hmm. a little more traditional than Reformed Jews who don't, who don't involve themselves with Jewish law and Jewish practice in the same way that we do. So I went to the conservative rabbinical school in New York City. Uh, there's now a conservative rabbinical school here in Los Angeles. There's one in Jerusalem. There's one in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, and there used to be one actually in Budapest, Hungary. 
Um, there are also now rabbinical schools that are, are what's called cross-denominational, that you're not just becoming a rabbi for a particular strand of Judaism, you're just learning the material and then you can go serve several different expressions of Judaism. It's an academic program and a spiritual program. So you're, you have tests and you have, you have homework, but you're also being guided in the craft of how to be a rabbi. That's how you actually do it. How to choose whether to do it? I'll tell you, Carl, I spent most of college trying to convince myself not to become a rabbi. <laughs> and the reason is that I, I, I was very involved in my Jewish life and studies, right, right. but I wasn't sure I wanted it to be my profession. I don't know if I wanted it to be where I got my paycheck and, and went to work. I, I wanted it maybe to preserve it as a, as a part of my identity. And I didn't have that many role models growing up of rabbis who served communities who were happy and healthy. Mm. In a different generation, this field ironically devoured you. Mm. It, you. It left you no time for family. You didn't have your own identity. It was not, it was not easy. And in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, um, when my role models were growing up, the economics were very different. It was very, very hard to live honorably on the salary you were being paid. Right? You don't, oh. No one goes into the rabbinate to get rich, but you want to be able to live right. like, a, like a human being. Right. That's changed, thank, thank God. So I, um, I'm, I'm compensated honorably. I can live my life. I can support my family. And I have great role models for how to balance my professional obligations and my personal obligations so that there is a separation between them. And ultimately, when I went to rabbinical school, I wasn't sure I wanted to become a rabbi. I went because I didn't know what else to do with my life, really. And I figured, while I'm trying to figure things out, I'll study the tradition. I mm. love the tradition. And then while in the program, it, um, it started to seep into my soul in a different way. And I, has, I spent one summer as an intern for a rabbi who was a rabbi at a small synagogue in South Bend, Indiana. I spent a summer there. It was a summer before I got married to my wife. And it showed me that you could build and lead a really beautiful and meaningful life by rabbiing a small community. And so when I graduated rabbinical school, I was basically looking for an East Coast version of that synagogue in South Bend, and that's how I got to upstate New York. I was there for nine years, and then this opportunity came up. So when you took over this synagogue, yes. how did that transition happen? To go from Jersey to L.A. Yeah. is a huge decision. Um, in all the ways a synagogue can be different from another synagogue, right. within, at least within the same stream of Judaism, this synagogue is different from my previous synagogue in every single way. That was a small mom-and-pop synagogue yeah. where I was the only full-time employee of the institution. This is a megachurch. This is, this is <laughs> major, yeah, mega right. synagogue. Yeah, right. no, but you're right. It's, it, the the megachurches that, that, right. that are really around are 10 to 15 times bigger than this, but this is Judaism's version, version of a mega-synagogue. With a, with a tremendous staff and a very involved infrastructure. There, I was like, I was like the, uh, you know, the doctor from Field of Dreams, right? Where, where like you make house calls and, you, and, and the old-fashioned kind of a doctor where you do, where you do everything. Right. Here, I'm a rabbi, but I'm also in some ways the COO of a $12 million nonprofit, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that was rural. This is urban. Right. That was... Um, Blue collar, right? right. Um, the the leaders in that synagogue were <laughs> yeah, they, they were social workers. We had candle makers, policemen, right. teachers. This happens to be a pretty down to earth community in L.A. Okay, but 
It's, it's LA. Still LA. It's still LA. <laughs> right. In fact, I remember when the first few weeks I was here, Carl, I came out uh, of synagogue after services, after bar mitzvah, and I don't, I don't drive on the Sabbath. I walk. So my, my parking spot in the lot is usually parked in by someone else on the Sabbath because I'm not going to bring my car. I came out of services and parked in my spot on the Sabbath ah. was a cobalt blue Bentley convertible. <laughs> and I said That's to myself, LA. I'm in L.A. That's LA. Uh, I was like, maybe the rabbi gets to claim that by eminent domain. You park in my spot on the Sabbath. Oh, funny, <laughs> funny. So uh, explain that. The car, you don't drive on Sabbath. Why is that? Why is that? So um, the Bible, the Torah, has just a very few sentences about the, what you can and cannot do to rest on the Sabbath. So you guys follow it to a T. We follow it, but it got expanded out in an enormous way, um, basically around the time of Jesus. So if you think of Jesus, right, so Jesus has um, a divine aspect to him from, in the Christian faith, and historically he was also, quote-unquote, just a man who was a scholar and a rabbi mm -hmm. in the early stages of rabbis about 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Around that time in history, the population of people who would become, to known as, become known as rabbis were interpreting the Bible, interpreting the Torah, and turning it into a very complex living system. So all the Torah says about Sabbath is you're supposed to rest, you're supposed to stay in your area, and you're supposed to not light a flame. That's all it says. But the rabbinic law turned that into volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of what you're supposed to do and supposed to not do. So most observant Jews like myself would not get in a car because in order to get in a car, you have to turn on the ignition. To turn on the ignition, you're basically lighting a flame. It's a version of, okay. of, of, of that rule, right? Okay. So then you could ask, well, what about an electric car? Yeah. Can you drive an electric car? electricity in a, in a home? So um, I've, I've gone in and out of that in my life. I grew up using electricity in the home. For many years, we did not use electricity on the Sabbath, but we yeah. would have lights on, timer, on a timer. But uh, in, I would say, the last eight to nine years, my family moved to include electricity in our home on, on Sabbath on the idea that whatever electricity is, it's different than fire. I would not light a fire in my okay. home. I would not strike a match. Um, but we, we do use electricity. But... Many, many observant Jews, and certainly all Orthodox Jews, would not use electricity on the Sabbath, but they might have things go on and off on a timer. If you set it before the Sabbath, okay. you can make use of it on Sabbath. So you walk on Sabbath? Correct. You don't, even, you don't have a driver or anything? No. But I live, wow. I live three quarters of a mile from here. Right? So I, first of all, I like to walk and bike anyway. But correct, I, I would, unless it was an emergency. So if there was a... If there was a medical emergency for my, myself or someone else, then I wouldn't hesitate, right. not, not for a second. Okay. But the idea is that Jews on Sabbath are supposed to kind of stay in or near their homes with other people in their neighborhood and have it be a home-based day. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's about family mm -hmm. and respecting the, the, the custom. So let me ask you this. What is the big, biggest misconception about Jews, in your opinion? What a question. And it can be a, a number of things. Yeah. But at least your top two, top three. I think people tend to assume that people who are in, in other categories that are not them are all alike. Right? It, the, what I'm about to say is incorrect, but I can imagine someone assuming, well, 
all Muslims are are, right. are Muslims, and right. all Catholics. I mean, if you, that, as if that defines everything about you, right. right? There are a lot of things that that tie Jews to one another across geography and across denominations. So I, a modern conservative rabbi in Los Angeles, I do feel connected to an ultra-Orthodox uh, Jew in Hungary or in Jerusalem. We, we, we share the same holy texts and we share the same holidays. But we, in some ways we couldn't have more different worldviews. So I think one misconception of Jews, but it's really a misconception of, of all others, is that we can easily put them in the same category. Like all French people are... Right. All gay people are. Right. All black people are. Right. All, all Jewish people are. Right. It, it breaks down. I think that's one misconception. Um, uh, let's see, another misconception about Jews. Well, I think it might also, from the outside, it might seem that, that, that Jews believe in and don't have doubts about God and the Torah because it's our mm. sacred text. I'm a rabbi. This is my work. I overflow with doubts, Carl. Mm. Doubting is a significant part of my faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think faith without doubts leads to unhealthy outcomes. Mm-hmm. So people might assume, like, I assume, I don't know if I'm right, I assume that the Pope has doubts about his faith because I want to think of him as a modest person and a modest person has doubts. But it might be it might be easy to assume from the outside, oh, they're Jews, they believe in the Torah, they believe in the, the God of Moses, and they don't have any doubts about it. I have tremendous doubts. And so therefore, I'm actually living and dedicating my life to an idea about which I doubt and wonder all the time. That's fascinating to me. So the stories of Moses and the stories from the Torah, those things, there are moments, or I should say, elements of it that you question. Only every single day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so much so, Carl, that I'm suspicious of my fellow Jews and my fellow Jewish leaders and my fellow rabbis who don't doubt or who don't admit that they doubt, who don't articulate to those doubts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you don't doubt or you don't articulate your doubts, your faith can become narcissistic Mm. and you are you are worshiping your own certainty. Because you know everything. Correct. You're so, you're so wise. Correct. And you have the answers. And you have the answer, and you know without a shadow of a doubt, this is exactly how it happened. And then it gets wow. flipped. Instead of it being you following God, right. it turns into God following you. Mm-hmm. Something, right. something broken about that. So some, it's more about trusting the maker, more than trusting your own intellect. Right. And, and also, I know with certainty pretty much certainty that I will live and I will die not having any certainty about who God really is or what God really is but I'm still willing to devote my life to it and that um, I'm not sure people know that about Jews and and I'm and I and I'd like to think that in every religious community amongst Christians and Muslims and 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 people of all faiths that there are people who are fundamentalists we know that who have no doubts right the the, the those who who certainly commit terrible, terrible violence in the name of God. Right. They clearly don't have any doubts. And that's a problem. Right. Who is the Messiah to you? Hmm. So Jewish dogma says that I must believe in a Redeemer. I must believe in a Messiah. 
Maimonides, who was one of the greatest um, rabbis and Jewish thinkers of all time, who lived in the uh, 12th century and early 13th century in, in Spain and Morocco, he codified Jewish belief into 13 basic principles and says that one of the things you have to believe in is, as we saw in that room over there, I believe in the coming of the Messiah, and even if he may tarry and, and he's delayed, I still believe in perfect faith. Um, one of the things that Judaism believes of the Messiah is that he will be, he, it's always thought of as a he, but to me it's not a gender thing, will be a human being, not a of divine origin. So one of the one of the reasons why Judaism and Christianity split is that the Christian notion of Jesus as being both the the son of a human mother but also of divine spawn right that deviates from Jewish theology which would suggest that the redeemer the messiah will actually be a human being born to two human parents um, who will uh, either come when the world has earned that person to come they'll come when the world has perfected been perfected or by dint of who's coming will perfect the world so y'all take the superstitious supernatural thing out of it at least out of the origin of his life correct Okay. I go in my own doubting but still believing place in the first category which is that I believe the messiah the Messiah to me is an, is an era more than it's a person. It is what we're constantly hoping for and working towards, which is the perfection of humanity and a world without war and hatred and divisiveness. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, which I know is the most elusive thing that human beings can try to attain, then the Messiah will appear. It's not that the Messiah is going to appear and do it for us. It's that when we figure, figure ourselves out how to really live human lives that we were supposed to, then the Messiah will appear. And there's a really great legend um, in the Talmud. The Talmud is the, the collection of laws and stories that the rabbis from the era we were talking before wrote. And it, it, it basically um, says that, that the, Messiah, the Messiah could come today. Someone asked the rabbi, when is the Messiah coming? Actually, a rabbi finds the Messiah. The Messiah says, and the rabbi says to the Messiah, when are you coming? And the Messiah says, today. And the rabbi seems confused, but you're not here. And he starts quoting a verse from the book of Psalms that says, today, comma, if you listen to his voice, which is a way of saying the Messiah could come today if all of us woke up mm. and started living the way we're supposed to. Mm. But since we can't, we're not capable of it, the Messiah's arrival is being delayed. And so it's the Messianic era to me, the Messianic idea is a... It's a push. It's a goad pushing us towards living a better life. And maybe we'll earn it. So it's not a person in, in, your, in your mindset. It's hard for me, even though there's a lot written about in the Jewish tradition, it's right. hard for me to even conceptualize it as a person. Mm-hmm. But I also know that I don't know. And I, it's something that I think about. But it's hard for me to conceptualize the Messiah as, a, as an individual person. So there are people who feel that Christ's second coming and, you know, the whole rapture, that's a Christian thing that's being taught. How does a rabbi interpret that? And again, this is just me asking from the perspective and the understanding that you don't believe in the rapture. So explain to me 
why that is, and how do you see that whole concept of rapture? I'm um, hearing a lot of that right now, considering, yes. you know, we have a new president, Biden, and people are freaking out. You know, it's, it feels like, I don't know if I can say that word in here. You can say it. <laughs> and it feels like everybody is looking for the world to come to an end when really we're just in this circle. Correct. Uh, so, yeah, explain, elaborate a little bit on that, your views on that. There's a, a classic Jewish joke that I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bungle that that um, when when the Messiah arrives, the Jews and the Christians are both gonna celebrate, but the Christians are gonna say, "Haven't we seen you before?" <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, well, welcome back, right? The difference between a second coming and a coming. Um, <laughs> we're all gonna oh, be at the same party. Yeah. That's funny. Um, yeah. So, right, Judaism doesn't use the word rapture, but we use, we use terms that refer to the messianic era, to the end of days, to the perfection of humanity, um, to the life after this one. And um, we, 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 we dream about it and we fantasize about it. And again, I think the most important thing that we do about it is try to work towards it. Right. Listen, there are some expressions of Judaism that are, and they certainly have been throughout history, deeply messianic um, movements where they believe the Messiah is right around the corner. There's a, a subset of Hasidim, Hasidim, called Lubavitch. They're from the town of Lubavitch uh, in, in, uh, in white Russia. And the, their rabbi, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who died in the early 90s, their sect really believed, while he was alive, that he was the Messiah. Mm. And when he died, showing himself to not be the Messiah, they, they, they were so committed to their belief right. that a significant portion of his disciples really believed that, in some ways similar to Christians' belief about Jesus, that he died but he didn't die, and he's hovering in some intermediary world, right. and he'll be back to redeem us. Right. Um, so this story has been told many different absolutely. ways, many different religions, many different... So your your so your perspective is, is that, the Messiah is kind of like a doubting. You just don't know, or or is it that you really just don't think that's a realistic point of view, a point of reference? I, th I think the messianic idea is a very positive thrust in human thought and religious thought, to drive us towards. A beautiful world. Mm -hmm. I think it's dangerous when we think we're, we're too close to it, and I think it's dangerous when we when we assign the identity of the Messiah to 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 someone around mm. us. And I think it's I think it's dangerous when we we try to overly drive other people's behaviors towards reaching the messianic era. So, like, mm -hmm. in some ways, if if I really believed that the Messiah was around the corner and on his way and it relied on the world perfecting itself and relied on everyone accepting like the truth of God I would stop running my nonprofit and I would go become a preacher and I would I would be knocking on your door and say Carl right. what are you doing to bring the Messiah today right but I'm not an evangelist right. because I because I don't I, I, I don't believe with that much certainty with that much strength of conviction that I, I have the right answers and I think that sometimes the Messiah is like used as a tool by very charismatic faith yep. leaders to say, yep. follow me, and I don't mind adding, yep. oh, and by the way, also donate to me. Yep. 
Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about that. So there seems to be an undertone of car sales, you salesman, Christianity, I call it, where someone is following this person, entity, this, I, I call it a kingdom to themselves, you mm -hmm. know, you know, in, in the black faith, we, we have this thing called bishop, you know, so the person will call themselves bishop, whatever, and they have a following, church following, music, and the whole bit, but at the end of it, people leave as they came, with basically nothing but hope, I guess, in a way. But it, I feel like in the Jewish community, it's not a, a dog and pony show. It's a real belief system. Um, without throwing anybody under the bus, what do you feel the Christian faith could learn from the Jewish faith? First of all, I think that there is just as much sincerity and just as much insincerity in Judaism as there is in Christianity. Okay. I have had the blessing to be in relationship with some truly sincere and humble and beautiful uh, colleagues of mine from the Christian community whose way of worshiping God and bringing their flock towards God is something that I admire and I find beauty in. And while I, I, have, I, I try to live my own rabbinic life with integrity, there are plenty of people who have the title rabbi who are snake oil salesmen oh, wow. and charlatans and leading people astray. Wow. Now, I'm sure there are people who might think that I'm leading people astray we all, because we all have our, we all have our idols that we, that, we, that we are certain that we should be bowing to. So I, I don't think that, I don't know that Judaism is um, immune from some of those dangerous expressions that you mentioned. I think we also know our own community the best. So, right, so y you know the people in the Christian community that you admire, and you, and you also know the parts of the Christian world or the Christ-following right. world that give you, you know, mixed The heebie-jeebies. Correct. <laughs> one, of my, one of my teachers, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, who is a very, very liberal Orthodox rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi, but a very liberal and progressive mind, he says, how do you know which denomination of Judaism is yours? the one that you're most ashamed of. Mm. Because you're going to see in the things that you're closest to the stuff that, that, that upsets you the most. So I see the parts of Judaism that bring me the most shame because I'm living in it. And I, I don't see as much in the Christian world that I, that I would point my fingers at and say, you need to learn from us because I'm just not that proximate to it. I do think that Judaism has celebrated from the very beginning that no question is a bad question. And I'm not suggesting that Christianity doesn't have right. that, but we celebrate it. We celebrate on Passover night, the night of the Exodus, that children ask hard questions. And even the child that's called the Rasha, the wicked child, who asks questions that are meant to bite and undermine and undercut the faith, that child in the, in the story of the, of the Passover night stays at the table as included in the family. So I, I, and I, I think this is an overly broad generalization. I think some of the overlap you see in, um, in what people who have been born and raised as Jews 
um, have done in the sciences and the world of research disproportionate to their population. I think some of that stems from thousands of years of Jewish homes being places where you're supposed to ask hard questions. And when you ask questions, you learn and you grow, and the tradition can handle it. The tradition will not break down because you asked a hard question. Mm -hmm. It will not mm -hmm. fall apart. And I think that while there are many places in Judaism that are not doing that well enough, that's something that Judaism has really um, tended to, and other faith traditions could probably use a healthy dose of it. So I want to ask you about the Holocaust. Um, what does the Holocaust mean to you? So I was born in the early 70s um, to the generation of those born to either survivors or those who are not survivors because they, they were already in America and therefore they were, they were safe, safe from it. Um, and it was a very huge part of my consciousness. So I could tell you the names of concentration camps before I could tell you the names of all the characters in the Torah. Wow. Um, I had nightmares as a child going, wow. going up in suburban Connecticut. Suburban Connecticut. I, had, I could picture the, you know, there are certain dreams you can remember for years. Mm -hmm. I can picture in my, dream, in my mind right now what the dream was of Adolf Hitler marching down my driveway with the Nazis, I, oh, wow. I grew up in a town in Connecticut where we just happened to have a long driveway, and I would and my the window to my bedroom was overlooking the driveway, and I would have nightmares that he was coming down the driveway. How old were you in this? Seven, seven eight. Oh, it was man. already in my mind. Yikes! Um, wow. Like to have it's, to have nightmare memories of something that you didn't experience, but you just kind of inherited as a as a weight on your shoulders. Interestingly, I don't know where this came from in my psyche, I would also have these half nightmares, half fantasies that had I been in the Holocaust, I would have survived. I would have figured out how to hide and get bread and bribe an official, which is all to say that in, as a seven-year-old, in addition to like playing Pac-Man and loving the Yankees, like in, in, in my brain, there was already Holocaust. Wow. I also, Carl, spent many of the summers of the 90s when I was in my early 20s, um, leading trips of high school students to Eastern Europe and taking them to Auschwitz and taking them mm -hmm. to the ghettos and teaching about the Holocaust as a part of my role as an educator, as a pedagogue. Um, I haven't been in many years, but that was a significant portion of my life. Um, I think like any piece of history, there have been parts of the Holocaust's story that have been, and this is a really hard word to use, abused by some parts of the Jewish community in the following very subtle way. Abused in the sense that if I can't get you teenager to love Judaism because of Judaism, maybe I'll get you to love Judaism through the veil of tears. Oh, wow. And I'll take you to Auschwitz and I'll show you how Jews have been treated throughout history and then maybe you'll come to synagogue. Oh, wow. And it's, 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 it's like you know, that urge as a parent when you know you can get your kid to do something this way it right. much harder to get it done this right. way, right. but this way is right available to you, right. and, and sometimes you don't have time to do it the harder way. Right. I think as educators, we sometimes make that mistake, and the Holocaust is powerful. So I think, um, I think it's also been abused by the Jewish community. I want to say this carefully. If, if the only thing that Jews pull out of the Holocaust story is that we are vulnerable, we Jews, and it could happen again to us, Listen, if we don't pull that up, then, 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 then we're not learning anything. Then, then, then we're, we're, gonna, we're doomed to repeat history again. But 
if we, if we invoke the Holocaust only when Jews are at risk, we also haven't learned something from that. So one of my teachers, Micah Goodman, who's a philosopher and historian in Israel, he says something very interesting about the five books of Moses about the Torah. The Torah mentions the Israelites being slaves in Egypt and the Exodus over and over and over again. It's driven home. Remember because you were slaves in Egypt. Remember because you were slaves in Egypt. It would make sense for an oppressed people to take its oppressed history and remind themselves of it to make sure they're never stuck in that situation again. Right. They'll never be oppressed again. Right. The Torah doesn't remember Exodus as a way of telling the Jews, make sure you never fall victim to a Pharaoh again. The Torah remembers Exodus to say, you can never be the Pharaoh. Mm. Don't oppress the stranger oh, wow. because you were That's oppressed. Good. Not don't let yourself be oppressed. That's good. So if we're saying, if we're saying That's good. remember the Holocaust so that we're never persecuted again, That's good. okay, right. remember the Holocaust so that you never tolerate right. that being done to someone else. That's powerful. Well, that's powerful. That I, I, I can relate to that because uh, I'm dealing with that right now as being of African-American, black descent. Um, I, I'm getting so tired of seeing my people uh, bring up slavery for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, slavery was... You know, we already know it was tragic, but if we are still enslaving each other with how we treat each other, with our time, with our resources, then we kind of miss the point. That's kind of what I'm hearing you say. It's like, take the information, never forget, but what is the reason why you're not forgetting? Correct. And what, what, what are you doing with that, right. with that, with that um, horrific national memory, right? Um, I, I think that is similar, Carl. And, um, and, you know, so, so, so the, the blacks being slaved in America and the Jews being slaved in Egypt yep. are now both in the history. The American enslavement is much more recent. And one of the differences is that Americans and certainly white Americans, even blameless, innocent, good white Americans are still reaping some of the benefits oh, of what yes. this country did on, yes. the, on the tortured backs of black people. But it's also the case that I think people of conscience who are descendants of an oppressed people have some kind of an obligation both to protect themselves, they must protect themselves, right? And use what they have learned as a people to protect others. So if I'm only using my trips to Poland to make sure that a Jew is never the victim of anti-Semitism again, then I, didn't, I wasn't listening carefully enough. Now, if, I'm, if, if there's too much self-loathing too, if I... If I if I if I don't learn that that the world is still a dangerous place for Jews, then I'm pie in the sky and I'm Pollyanna. And I think there are places in the world that are very very safe and wonderful for Jews, and there are places in the world and parts of the world where I don't think that the Holocaust is about to happen again. But I think there are places where Jews need to defend themselves, right? And I think I would imagine I I I, I, I if I can be so bold as to make the statement that the same is true for our, an African-American or a black right. person in America. Right. Right? There are parts of this country that are almost post-racial, right. o- o- almost post even the concept as a category, where, um, where the black community has achieved things that would have been inconceivable 150 years ago or even 50 years ago. And there are places where the society is incredibly and disastrously broken. And both of those lessons have to be pulled out of those national traumas. 
Great. That's great, man. That's 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 beautiful. Um, let me ask you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pivot, pivot a bit. Um, economically, what did, what could you teach my people? And I and I say this with respect. I say this with dignity. I say this with, um, with, with, and you know, with 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 the will to want to learn how to give the information to my people. Um, it seems like in the Jewish community, you guys have your own economic system. I mean, like I'm looking at this beautiful synagogue. It looks like y'all spent at least a hundred million, <laughs> probably more. Uh, much, much, much less than you think. But okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> it looks like you spent a hundred million. <laughs> um, where did you guys get that from to become economically dependent upon you yourselves versus really reaching for others to kind of go, hey, look at me, I need something. Um, and I say that with respect because there are a lot of people who want to do for themselves that are in our community. Yeah. Um, but they, our people won't help. Yeah. Our people will not connect the dots and say, okay, we can create our own wealth. We can create our own schools. We can create our own whatever. Talk a little bit about that. And from your perspective, how do you see that? Um, how, how, what, what is that about? How, how, did, how did you guys get to that point? It's a really interesting question, Carl. Um, I'll start with the humble pronouncement that, that, that the question you're asking, I'm, I'm going to think about in real time and answer. And it's also not my field sure. in the sense that I don't, I don't, I really don't know. And there's no false humility here that I have that much more to offer on the, ec on, on the, the, ec the economics of the Jew than any other Jew would or that any other economist would. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where my mind is going right now. There are Talmudic principles, thousands of years old, that obligate Jews to be responsible to one another. There's a notion. That's it. Okay. See y'all. <laughs> that's it. That's the end of the podcast. Mic drop. That's mic drop. <laughs> um, that that should be the. That's going to be the trailer. <laughs> there's a five word five word statement in the Talmud that I think both emerged from early Jewish consciousness from 2,000 years ago and has driven Jewish consciousness. And I'll say it to you in Hebrew so you'll see how concise it is in English. Sure. Kol Yisrael arevin ze bazeh. Kol, all or every, Yisrael, Israel, every Israelite Jew. Arevin, which is such a beautiful word. word fiscally and morally and communally responsible. Zelazeh, one to another. Mm. Right? So, so even, you know, Think about the year a thousand, right? Before the printing press, before any modernity. If you're a Jew in France and the Crusaders are coming through and marauding the Jewish community in the way of the, uh, the Holy Land, and you can get word to a Jew in Morocco who is not at all subject to uh, that historical process, right. the, Jew in Morocco, the Jew in Morocco in the year 1100 is going to send money to the Jew in France. Wow. Because they have inherited for a thousand years already this idea that a Jew there, I am responsible for. There are parts of that that are beautiful and parts of it that are problematic. The parts of it that are beautiful are that there's a network that uh, transcends geography. 
the parts of it that are problematic is that that can become very provincial and very jingoistic. Okay. Like, why, why should I feel more responsible to Goldberg living in Brooklyn than I do to my friend Carl Jackson? Because he's not Jewish, right. he's a different color of skin. Why, right. If you're in trouble, why wouldn't I help you? I'll, I'll help Goldberg in Brooklyn, won't help you. Right. So I, I, there's, there's something problematic about it as well that, that I feel emotional about okay. because I'm proud of the fact that my philanthropy goes to, you know, Jewish communal living in the north of Israel, and then I also feel guilty that why, why should I feel more about their thriving than I do about your thriving or a, an Asian in Koreatown or someone living in Malaysia? Wow. But I think another part of it is that thing we spoke about earlier in terms of the Jewish curiosity right. um, and the focus on learning and education. It has been the case. Again, this is a broad generalization. Generalizations always break down in the, in the nitty-gritty. It has been the case in, in one part of the world to another for centuries that Jews have found a way through learning and education and perseverance and grit to figure out the economics of where they are and for the most part thrive. Now, there are plenty of poor Jews and there are certainly plenty of there are poor Jews in Los Angeles. There are, Carl, there are members of our community who give this, this congregation a five-figure philanthropic gift every year. Some of their families, thank God, who who in addition to the other uh, charity they give, they write a $50,000 check a year to the synagogue wow. to support our work. There are people, <laughs> I'm getting emotional thinking about it. Wow. There are people who wouldn't pay their bills were it not for our support mm. of them. Someone, I've, I have a discretionary fund in my, one of the bank accounts here, it's called the Rabbi's Discretionary Fund. You know, your, your son gets, gets married and you make a disc, uh, gift to the discretionary yeah. fund and then it's at my discretion to disperse it. There's a woman in this community who every once in a while, for reasons I don't know, for timing I don't know, makes a lovely gift to my discretionary fund. So I got this week a $10,000 gift to my discretionary fund. And I sent a letter to my staff saying, I have this, I have this cash, give me names of people in our community who are struggling. Right? You know, Jews in Los Angeles, you would think Jews in Los Angeles, they live in the Hollywood Hills and they drive a Lamborghini. Some of them do. There are Jews in our community who without my being able to give them a Hanukkah gift, would not be able to get gifts for their children, would not be able to pay their bills. So the, 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 the message is one that has reached a lot, and the effect of the message has reached a lot of the Jewish community throughout time and history and geography, but it's certainly not comprehensively the case that every Jew has figured this thing out. Um, one of the challenges in the modern Jewish world about this, and this really, I lose sleep about this, Carl, is that the the admission price to be a modern, educated, and active Jew is criminally expensive. I'll tell you mm. what I mean by that. I love this synagogue. I love this building. It's very expensive to maintain. I love that I sent my, Jewish, my kids to Jewish summer camp. Running a high-quality Jewish summer camp takes a lot of gold, right? We want to pay the teachers in our school good money so that they can afford themselves. But in order to do that, we have to charge disgusting amounts of money to our people. So if, if, when I think about who are the next 100 families who are going to join the synagogue, what kind of family wealth they're going to need to have, not to be the big donors in our synagogue, just to um, get in the door. Yeah, right. It, this, house of court, this house of cards might fall in on us at some point. It oh, might wow. be that it's just too expensive to maintain. So if you have three kids, forget about even the L.A., um, real estate issue. You have three children, 
and you want to give your kids a parochial Jewish education and send the kid to Jewish summer camp and every couple of years take a trip to Israel, you need about a hundred grand of post-tax money. Post-tax, you have to earn 170 just to deal with the basic le entry level. So thank God there's, there are resources in the Jewish community that we've developed, but it's a really high, high bar to maintain. Wow. Yeah, I read somewhere like, um, you're not even considered middle class in California if you make 150000 a year. It's not even considered middle class anymore. Like, it's considered um, poor. It's insane. It's considered poor. Now, you know, 150 grand, you and I both know, that's a lot of money. Yeah. I have a friend, Carl, that I, he and I were in youth group together. I grew up in a conservative Jewish youth group. And, um, it was an, it's a national movement. We were both from the East Coast. He now lives in near D.C., He's a pediatric cardiologist, so not only a doctor, not only a cardiologist, but a specialist in cardiology. I don't know what he earns, but he earns fine. Right. He does not send his kids to a Jewish day school, a Jewish private school. Not because he didn't believe in it, because he can't afford can't it. Can't afford it, right. What are we doing? Wow. What are we doing? Who is this, right. who's, who's this for? Right. If a pediatric oncologist cannot send his kids wow. to a Jewish school, we're in trouble. What is the, what is, what is the significant part that we need to learn then as humans um, because you, you, you made a profound statement when you said yeah I love the fact that we look out for each other but why should I look out for this person because they have the word Jew in front of their name if my friend Carl the name friend in front of his name needs rent that month and right. I can help him out pay some of it I that's, a, that's a good that was a good um, never heard a rabbi break it down to that truth before. I think about this a lot, Carl. Listen, I think that, I think we love in concentric circles. We would all, it all makes sense that I love my wife more right. than I love another woman. That, right. That, right? And, I, and it makes sense that I like, I love my children more than I love yeah, your daughter. Absolutely. I'd love to meet your daughter. But absolutely. We get that that makes sense. Absolutely. As the concentric circles go farther and farther out, it's harder and harder to justify. If it's right. not my wife, and it's not my child, and it's not my niece, and it's not my third cousin, it's just someone who reads the same holy book that I do, I both get and don't get why I should feel more connected to them. Right. Than I, I also think that part of it is the overwhelm, because I can't care about seven billion citizens mm. of the world. I can't. So I can't, I can't care about the impoverished in Japan because I just don't have enough space in my brain. We care about the things that are closest to us. I'll give you an interesting story. Yeah. So three years ago, my family and I had an opportunity to take a sabbatical. So one of the things that happens in the rabbinic world, and I, I hope it happens in the world of Christian pastors as well, is that because the work is so beautiful but overwhelming, every seven to ten years you're given an opportunity to take not really an extended vacation, but a, but a break from work to explore other parts of yourself. Just like sometimes academics at a university don't have to teach one semester, they just get to study and write. So my family took a sabbatical. How long is a sabbatical, by the way? It's, it, depends on, it depends on what you've negotiated. So okay. it's, it's both a beautiful idea and the nitty gritty is that you negotiated with your, the lawyers and your okay. negotiating team. I, was, I took a six month sabbatical. So for six months, I was not operating in the institution and my other rabbis were. And I was mostly learning and studying and growing. Make a long story short, we decided to take the sabbatical in England and we were living in the town of Oxford, where Oxford University is, for four months. 
Now, in L.A., the homeless are everywhere. And it's such a big problem that you can say to yourself, well, since it's so big, I have to devote every hour, every waking hour, every waking hour to help the homeless who are on my streets that I'm literally walking over them to get to my office. Or it's so big that I go into overload, and since I can't help them all, it doesn't even make sense to help one. Oxford is a smaller town, fewer homeless people because there are fewer, fewer citizens, and because it's small geographically, they're all right there. I spend a significant number of my hours living in Oxford, England, talking to, giving food to, giving blankets to, giving fleeces off my back to the homeless people that I got to know because I was near them. I don't live on Skid Row. If I lived on near Skid Row in Los Angeles, I don't know how I could avoid spending most of my week trying to figure out how to ameliorate that situation because it's such a human debacle. But in this town where I was living in England, because I was living right there and I got to know them and I started asking them questions and hearing about their lives, I started caring about them more than caring about my third cousins because mm-hmm. I'm in relationship with them. So I do think that we, we, we love and we care in concentric circles and we, we love and we care about things that are close to us, both close to us um, in physical distance. Listen, I know you. A year ago, I didn't know you. Now that I know you, if something were to happen to you, I would feel broken about it. A year ago, you were the same human being. And if something happened to you, I wouldn't have known, so I wouldn't have cared. Like, literally. Right. right? Now that... Um, so, so there's a proximity in terms of physical distance and a proximity in terms of being in a relationship that once you, once you feel connected to a person or a group of people, you're going to feel responsible to them. And since I know all the Jews, like I, I don't, but I know them, <laughs> I, that's one of my concentric circles that I care about. Right? That's beautiful. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, so uh, I have a segment of my show where we talk about, we, we ask you your top five favorite things or whatever. Um, so I'm going to get into that right now. Please. I want to know, well, before I get into that, let me ask you, what do you do to, to decompress as a writer? I mean, you over this, you have a huge staff. Your staff was amazing. Um, they were most hospitable to me and, and my little team. Um, so uh, what do you do to decompress? Because it seems like a week goes by really fast. Yes. And it's right back to Saturday. You got to do your, your thing. So what do you do to, to decompress, and how do you prepare for your sermons? Uh, self-care is a really important part of life and a part of my life and a part of rabbinic life. I think when you're in, in a giving and caring profession, which I'm in, you can the burn yourself industry. out. Yeah, you can burn yourself out. Right. My wife, too. My wife's a couples therapist, and she gives a lot of herself to help build up couples' abilities. Oh, your be. wife is a couples therapist? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. And she's very good at it and it takes a lot out of you right. because you're really allowing yourself to be totally inhabited by this oh, couple's stress yeah i exercise i bike i bike uh I, I, have a, I have a biking group and one of the things that i love most about los angeles is that 12 months a year you can just bike to the beach so i'm actually i'm what's today to say it's december 16th mm-hmm. i'm 70 miles away from my goal this year which is gonna be 4,000 miles i'll bike 4,000 miles by the time Get December thirty first. Yikes! So that's that's how I decompress. You see Santa Monica. You do Santa Monica or Venice. What? Usually we take the bike path from Culver City to Playa del Rey. Okay. And depending on how much time we have, we go to Manhattan Beach or Hermosa or gotcha. Redondo. Sometimes we go even to uh, um, Palos Verdes and come back. Gotcha. Depends on the day. Um, sports. 
Like, I, I know that sports mean nothing. I do know that. As a man of God, I know they mean nothing. But I, there are very few towns I wouldn't pillage to go to see a Yankee game. I okay. Mean, I, I just... I, so I, I, I love watching it. I love watching golf and tennis and, and basketball, and I enjoy that. I enjoy the statistics and, and, and passing that down to my children. Um, you know, uh, my wife and I usually end the night with 23 minutes of some Netflix or Hulu show and just... And then Netflix watches you. Exactly. <laughs> what's, what's your show right now? I know exactly. <laughs> so there's always a show that I'm watching with my wife and a show that I'm watching without her because she has very, she's very sensitive to intrigue and, okay. and, and mystery. Right. So without her, I'm watching Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. Great show. Wow. Great show. And with her, um, we're in episode five of The Queen's Gambit, the new Netflix show. Okay, I, but, I gotta get into that. Well, I think the next thing we have to get into is something on CJC TV. <laughs> I, mean, I, I wanna give a plug. I mean, the, the fact that yeah. I haven't, I haven't watch, said anything yet, I, I feel terrible. Yeah, watch you, my you new tell show. me what I should watch. Watch my new show, Forgiven. Shameless <laughs> plug. It's on Tubi, actually. And CJC Network, yeah, gotta watch it. Yeah. Um, but I, when I first met you and I heard that acronym, I hadn't heard the acronym CJC since when I was in college <laughs> my the, the group of Jews that would, I went to Columbia and we would gather for prayer as CJC oh, the wow. conservative Jews of Columbia and then I lived 20, 25 years and I, and I realized there's a CJC. new CJC <laughs> Carl Jackson company Carl Jackson channel network you're watching me now on it so there you go <laughs> so, um, so that's how I decompress and how I get ready for my sermons yes which, um, by the way, guys, uh, this wonderful rabbi had me speak to his congregation. I gave a sermon uh, to his congregation here, and I'm still, like, on cloud nine. We were just talking about that. It was like, I still can't believe you gave what, what? Were you high that day? What made you give me an opportunity like that? Anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll answer that question too. We, 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 we hadn't even met in person. Yeah, I know. Then, but, it's like we hadn't even met yet. But listen, there was something about the way you presented yourself and your and your and your journey and your interest in the world that was humane, earnest, and beautiful. And I wanted I wanted to hear your your well, prophecy. I wanted to hear your words. Nice. I mean, he just wonderful experience. I. Loved it. Can't wait to come back when we're, you know, get out of this COVID thing. If it, if we ever get out of it, that would be great, Carl. How do you prepare? Sermons? It really depends on the week. Um, I'm kind of an old-fashioned rabbi in that I don't generally go to the headlines for my sermons. Mm -hmm. I don't generally go to the news. I really stay. And you and I have talked about this offline. As far away from American politics as mm. possible. It's not that I don't care about it. Yes. I just don't think that my job is to stay behind that. It's called a bima, that lectern. Pretend to speak in God's name and tell you that I know what's best for this country. Right. I, as a citizen, I have thoughts on it. As a rabbi, I'm not so sure. Right. So usually, I start from the holy book. I, I open up the book, and I wait for a verse to speak to me, and then I start looking at the commentaries, and the commentaries from thousands of years ago, from hundreds of years ago, and from last week. And, and I. And you say the book, you mean the Torah, the right? The Torah, right. Not the Bible. Right. Just so you so guys I, know. I look from, um, you know, from whatever section is represented by any of these panels that's lit that right. week, right? So this week, um, we're reading um, 
the, the section, the Parsha is called Mikates. It has to do with um, uh, Pharaoh's dream and Joseph coming to, to, to interpret his dream. So I've been thinking about that all week and waiting for something to just kind of catch my attention. And then I see, well, what did the Talmud say about this line? What did Rashi, who lived in France in the year 1100, say about this line? What did my friend in Jersey say about it last, last year? And I say a significant portion of my sermons are about how we treat one another, how we interact with one another, and how we try to create justice in a family and a society. I try to stay away from policy because I'm not a policy wonk. I try to stay in the realm of values. So some rabbis, and I don't, I'm not judging them, we're just different, will take the Torah's lessons and tell you, therefore, I think this approach by, by this party or by this politician is the way our country needs to go. I have my own personal opinions on that. I would rather stay one level higher and say, these are the values I hear emanating from our tradition. Now go apply them in a way that, that seems honorable to you. Right? Um, sometimes I speak to the moment, I speak to current events, um, and sometimes my preparation is very, very deep and internal, and I'm yeah, some, some, I usually do my prep on Thursday and Friday. I was just going to ask, when do you prep? I was just going to ask. I prep unconsciously all week. Right, But course. it doesn't start to crystallize till Thursday right. or Friday. Right. And sometimes there's something that's deep welling within me that I just need to get out. And then instead of starting with the Bible and figuring out what I want to say about it, I start with, here's a message I need to share. And I just need to go to the... The, um, the dresser and pick out the right garment to, to cloak it up in. And there's always something. There's always something Absolutely. in that week's reading that you can use. So what has it been like uh, having to do your services through Zoom? I see your Zoom set up here. Yeah. You said I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I love it and I hate it. Right. I love it because, could you imagine this pandemic a decade ago? School a decade ago? We'd be, we would Business? Be, yeah, it would be over. It would be over. Yeah, it'd be I don't over. know how they did it during the, during, yeah. you know, the 100 years ago, yeah, the, 19, 1918. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful for it, and I hate it. I hate it because it fries my brain. I hate yeah. what I feel like after the second hour yeah. of meeting on Zoom. Yeah. And I, you stand here, right here where, where my cameraman is at. Correct. You stand right here. I or one of my colleagues, I'd And you, you look into that camera, yeah. and the screen is kind of, I guess, your congregation, your staff. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it by yourself, pretty much. I hate it because, as we talked about earlier, as someone who doesn't really use electronics on the Sabbath, I'm, used, I'm not used to looking at screens. I know that in our, in our generation, our screens are everywhere. Sabbath everybody's got to be a newscaster now. Right? right. And Sabbath has been a break for me from screens, and so I have to interact with that technology. But I also love the fact that, I, I mentioned before that we have some really beautiful philanthropists in our synagogue. Some of them are quite old, in their 80s and 90s, and even without COVID, are not feeling well enough to go to synagogue. As a result of this technology that we put in place for COVID, they're able to now go to synagogue okay. from their bedroom. Right. And that's a beautiful thing. So I'm also really grateful for it. Um, you know, as I hope is obvious, I like people. The fact that right. I can now see you in three dimensions yeah. the first time I'm seeing you. I, like I, I know so much more about you right. than I could ever find out from a screen. Same here. And I miss people. Right. I miss people. Yeah, crazy. So, top five. Yes. Uh, are you your sports fan? Are you a hip hop fan? I am not a hip hop fan. Music fan. I'm a music fan with a with with a butt. The butt is. Um, <laughs> I don't listen to music anymore. Okay. And the reason Why? because 
I have something in my brain. It's called it's called a musical earworm. And what it is is when I hear a song too frequently, it gets stuck in my brain, and then I, I hear, and then I hear it when I don't want to hear it, and uh, it haunts me. So uh, I, I, there's a lot of music in my work, singing and and praying, and when I, I I'm learn, learning new tunes all the time because I want to share it with the congregation. But so I you can't don't price. want that messed up by hearing the earworm. Okay. So what? Let me ask you this thing. What yeah. are your top five groups? When you were listening to music, okay. what were your top five? Um, I mean, a, as a kid, um, Billy Joel. I love Billy Joel. Um, uh, the Eagles. Oh. Um, they might be giants. Oh. Um, uh, Crash is still Nash and Young, and either Simon and Garfunkel or Peter Paul and Mary. Okay. Yeah. All, All good collected. stuff. All good stuff. Your top five. Foods. Before I get into the top five foods, yes, sir. Why is kosher so important? Um, so one of the things you're learning about me is that I, on many opinions, I have, on many topics, I have an opinion and a, just a strong a counter opinion. Okay. I really believe in keeping kosher, and there are pieces of me as a rabbi who hates the system. I believe in it because I believe in the idea of, of Jewish eating. I believe in you know, talking about feeling connected to a Jew in Morocco or, right. or Tunisia because we're abiding by the same food laws and right. it connects us. Right. Um, and originally, I think kosher had an ethical overlay to it. Okay. The reason why I hate it is that it's become, for me, soured and dirtied by power games and authority mm, okay. and money. And I think that there's a lot that's being done in the name of kosher eating that is... I, I say this initially, unkosher. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm committed to it, but there are parts of it in the modern world that bother me. But my, you want to know my five favorite foods? Yeah, five favorite foods. Sushi. Um, Raw. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything with peanut butter. <laughs> so I got some Reese's in the back. <laughs> um, a really good kale salad. Okay. Um, uh Chulent, which you've probably not heard of. What is that? Chulent is a slow-cooked, um, I don't eat meat anymore, but um, you can do a vegetarian or not, or not, meat and potatoes and bean stew that Jews would eat on the Sabbath because you start cooking it on Friday and then you let it cook. You're not allowed to cook on Sabbath. Right. But if you start something cooking before the Sabbath, right. you eat it. So Jews would put this stew up at Friday at noon. They'd come home from synagogue 24 hours later. And it's warm. And, and, it's warm and right. it makes the whole, whole smell good. Smell good. So the, Is it like a roast? It's a, it's a, it's a stew. It's like... Um, it, what kind of meat, though, do you use as oh, a base? You can use um, pretty much anything. Oh. Um, the Yiddish word is flunk and like, I think like shoulder and I don't right. know. I don't know much about it. But it's like a soup. It's thicker than a stew. But it's like a. It almost has the consistency of a, of a stew, chili, okay, or asphalt. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's, he so, went from, it's so thick and heavy. He said, <laughs> <laughs> you feel <it> like. <laughs> he said stew to asphalt. <laughs> you could like you could pave a road with it, but it's really good to eat on a cool winter day. Oh man, that's funny. Okay, and your fifth. <laughs> um, my fifth one. Um, what do I really love? Um, pizza, pizza, pizza. I love pizza. Yeah, pepperoni. 
can't. Oh, you can't do meat. Can't. I hate pork. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure I would love it. I would ask. I asked him in a synagogue, "Does he like pepperoni pizza?" That's another. Well, that's trailer two. I'll tell you a funny story about that. A couple of years ago, <laughs> pork. We went. We went. We for my in-laws' 50th wedding anniversary. We went to a, a family camp with all the. My in-laws and the kids and the grandchildren, we all went to a family camp for a week, and the kids had their own programming. And my youngest one, I guess, was four at the time. He went into kids' programming. And it wasn't a Jewish camp. It was just a UC Santa Barbara. Right. And my son basically knew at that time in his life what he was and was not supposed to eat, but we forgot to tell the counselor before uh. we went out, like, what his limitations were. Uh-oh. So he comes back in the afternoon and says, he calls us Ima and Abba, Mom and Dad. Ima and Abba, guess what? Like, what? He goes... I, I, I tasted something really good. He says, what? Salami pizza. Oh, man. <laughs> so he, he, he had filled his tummy with, with pepperoni oh, he's, pizza. He's, he's messed up for life now. <laughs> or, or, or maybe it's actually even better now because now he knows how good it is. He, he gets more credit for refraining from eating. Yeah, absolutely. Cheese, right? So cheese you do pizza. cheese pizza. Top five favorite things to do. Um, wrestle with my son, like play wrestle with my son. Bike with my buddies, enjoy a good scotch, travel, and meet interesting folks like you. Well, what can I say? Top five places to travel that, you, that either you've been or would like to go. Israel. I've been, you know, Israel both as a religious mm. destination and just as a tourist destination. I've probably been to Israel about... 45 or 50 times. Oh, wow. And it's, it's a... Do you learn something new every time you every go? Every single time. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I hope to continue going back there the rest of my life. Um, we are... Um, we do synagogue travel. Uh, every year we pick a different destination and we go as a community. Not everybody, but we fill up a bus. So we've been to Cuba as a community. We've been to uh, Morocco as a community. We were supposed to go, actually, this, this past year to the South, the American South, and visit like um, the the Jewish story and the relationship between the Jewish story and the African American story in Birmingham and in Charleston and Montgomery and in Selma. And we have to reschedule that because we couldn't do it because of COVID. Right. But the reason why I mention all that is that um, we're, we're now hoping to take a trip as a synagogue to the Emirates, to Dubai oh. and to Bahrain. Now that they have opened That's up relationship with Israel, nice. so I'd love to visit there. That'd be nice. Um, I've never been to Asia. Um, so I would love one day to visit, you know, Japan, um, both to see the country itself and also there's an interesting Jewish story in Japan. A particular Jewish uh, J- Japanese politician in the 1940s played a significant role right. in saving certain Jews from the Holocaust. And the fifth one, um, one of those um, safari trips in Tanzania, wow. Namibia, to really see wildlife up close. Africa. Africa. Yeah. Uh, two more final top fives, or two more top fives, not final, but these are my two final questions. Okay. All right. Top five movies, if you watch movies. I do watch movies. Okay. Shawshank. Oh, great. Morgan Freeman. Few Good Men. You Can't Handle the Truth. Jack Nicholson. Uh, Mary Poppins. I will always love Mary Poppins. Gotta love Mary. Gotta love Mary Poppins. Um, I'm a sucker for the movie The Rock with Sean Connery. and. uh um, Nicholas Cage. Cage, I love that yeah. movie, and um, uh, I, I have to stop with, with, with only one more left. Trading Places. 
Eddie Murphy. Man. Back when Eddie Murphy yeah. was the funniest guy he alive. He was funny. Yeah. yeah. Trading Places and Coming to America are my two favorite Eddie Murphy movies. So Trading Places, um, I think, has, has, has um, endured the test of time. It I've really seen my, has. my oldest has seen Trading Places. It really has. I could not get her into Coming to America. It, there was really? something about the pace of it. Yeah. She just, she, yeah. it was 280s. I don't know. She, she didn't get it. Yeah. Trading Places she thought was hysterical. Maybe because I've been quoting it her entire life. They're both uh, John Landis. Shout out to John Landis, director. Uh, he directed both of those films. And Stripes too, right? And Stripes. So. Which was interesting because it, it, it makes you wonder how much of it was John Landis considering those are the only two Eddie Murphy movies I like. So. Not Beverly Hills Cop? I'm not into that huh. movie. Okay. And I didn't really get into... The, I like some of the clumps, you know, Nutty <laughs> Professor stuff. Um, there were little, some funny scenes it was, in those movies. Yeah, yeah. That, it was a good movie. I think that's, that's why I keep thinking I think it's John Landis because... He just, he's a great storyteller. Yeah. I want to send out a special thank you to the rabbi for doing the second episode of season five and to the staff of Temple Bethlehem. They were gracious to me and my team, my staff. Uh, we had a wonderful time filming what you just saw. And uh, I hope that you guys will take to heart the things that we talked about tonight. Till next time, you be blessed.